For long I've wanted to write whatever comes into my head. And here it is. I've written of man, woman and child. Insect and diprotodon, stories, incidents, articles. I've been moved by the mirrored beauty of a lonely Cape York Peninsula river and the sighing breath deep down in some faraway Kimberley Gorge. I've written of animals and birds, reptiles and fish that once tickled memory as they crossed my rambling path. As the mood came, I wrote of bush, desert and jungle, of sunlight on the coral sea and the laughter of island boys. It may have been the harshness of the Nullarbor or joy in the hearts of men that came to my mind. It may have been anything at all caught in some whiff of memory from the pathway of the years. Here are random scraps from the great scrapbook of life. Ian El Idris, The Norwesters. born in, this, in my grandmother's house and it was a very, very big house and she was the matriarch of the family and when my mother and father married she wouldn't allow them to get their own home. Uh, my uncle also had his, his room and in his room he had a bookcase, you know, lead light glass door with, locked and the bookcase was full of these, every address book, he had the lot and as a kid I wanted to read them and they used to say no. They're not for little girls. Little girls don't read that kind of book. And my uncle, Ray, I used to say, Ray, oh, come on, you know, just just let me have a look. <laughs> so, actually, actually, what I got to read of Idris was very scented. I couldn't read the desert column because that was, you know, too gruesome and too horrible. Back of cans, I think they accepted that as being reasonable. Uh, or he did. So we had this little clandestine meeting occasionally where he'd let me read pages or he'd go through the book saying, oh no, you can't read that bit, you can read that bit. And so there it sat. Forever I wanted to read Idris. Can you describe what he looked like? Well, in his 40s, he, he was pretty suave and smooth to look at. In his publicity photos, you could have said he was like a 40-year-old Bing Crosby. And basically, I mean, the women adored him. I mean, he must have been knocking them off with a stick. <laughs> that was the other thing that was always missing in his books or in his boxes. Not too much in the way of letters from women, except there were a set of blue envelopes tied with a blue ribbon. And I remember her saying, you know, you have been through the fire so many times, my love. And I thought, they obviously meant a lot to him because he, he did keep them tied with the ribbon. Funny one. Is the literary lion still working? Or is he a nice, tawny, tame beast with social circus tricks? I wrote to you and told you of all things, but left the letter on my desk and himself read it, tore it up. He pointed out that a perfect lady does not mention her foundation garments giving her prickly heat and causing her to terminate the letter abruptly. I agree, of course. So I won't end this letter as I did the last. But it was Harold trying to write in a compressing, slendering thingamy, unmentionable. Your references to me as lady made me smile. 
God meant to cut me out so. But the devil ran off with the pattern. Regards, Ali Innes, New Guinea. Are you beginning to get a picture? A ladies' man, a romantic, a wanderer, a writer, Australian to his core. Ian, Jack to his mates, Idris. There were many, many books, more than one a year for 40 years. Best sellers. Close to three million came off the presses during the toughest time for books, you'd think. The Depression. How many millions of words did he write? On jam labels, on a sodden ship's log, on any old scrap of paper that washed up. Writing paragraphs of the bulletin was great training. Well, writing paragraphs for the bulletin was great training. I was... I was a kid. I was fossicking King then. I'd carried my swag to Lightning Ridge and there my mate, he was a bonzer chap, of all the persons in the world, he was a lawyer, a solicitor, and he'd been sent up there for his family's good, for Sydney's good, as he said, because he was always getting on the tank, you see. Well, old Tom Peel, he took quite a fancy to me and I and thought I could write. That's because of these bulletin things. He said, you can go a lot further than that. You'll be an author one of these days. So I laughed. Anyway, he kept at me and he kept at me and he got at me ego. He said, I said, oh, well, then I'll write articles first and then I'll start writing books. He says, you, you couldn't write so-and-so. He says, you, you couldn't write so-and-so. Then he started scorning me sort of thing, which is exactly how a uh, little freckled girl got me to write the desert column. Every bloody word under fire. Man's got an awful powerful ego, you know, even if he's only a bit of a tom thumb and worth about 30 bob a week, he's still got an ego if you can scratch it. An ego. And dreams. Big ones. Water piped to the centre of the continent all the way from the Sepik in New Guinea. A machine gun before someone else got there first. But there's something about him. Try to pin him down and he slips behind a tree in his bushy's outfit. His writing style is so dated. Purple even. His attitudes too. We share very little in common, and he'd have disdained me for sure. A woman. He might have flirted. But I keep reading because I'm compelled. It's been three years to this point, and I can't put him down. Each time I turn a page, I think, we're getting there. I'll know who he is in a minute. Though I'm really not sure why I care. Why don't we start with the box, eh? My little box of goodies. This one. Um, oh, can you describe what this is? I can tell here? you what that is. That is the very first diary that he made notes on when he went to um, Gallipoli. It's, it's the leather, I'd say. It's very old, very battered. Carried that right through First World War. Gosh, um, how wonderful to see this. This old know. leather, little leather-bound diary yeah. with an old, very old piece of ribbon. The very first thing that Wendy gave me 
of, of her father's before she gave me all the other papers. And now I'm more or less regarded as a talisman. I'm sort of, I, I can't part with it. it no. was, from that point on, it was a very big journey. Mm. Um, but if you look in the back, which is very faded somewhere here, there's a list of things that he bought before he left Cooktown in terms of shovels, tea, sugar, and the prices. Look how much writing. I mean, he really used all the space, oh, didn't he? Oh, yes. And every line, right from the, from the top of the page right down to the bottom. What are those, no. all those letters, I wonder? I mean, I, I could be guessing here, but when um, they were in the desert, there were codes used between one another. This was after they left Gallipoli. What does it say there? One of the Turkish, can you read it? One of the Turkish shells is struck. No, I, I A can't. destroyer. Is that what it was? Loaded with men. Wind. It killed two and wounded ten. The mm. troops are landing on the beach now under shrapnel. They do not look as if they are enjoying, enjoying themselves. themselves. <laughs> wow, I mean, so he's writing this as it's going yeah, on. Yeah, at the very, very beginning. Some are rotting without either shape or form. The boots last the longest. Within a few yards of my periscope lay a tale telling how furiously both sides died. The Australian's bayonet is sticking rusty and black, six inches through the Turk's back. One hand is gripping the Turk's throat, while even now you can see the Turk's teeth fasten through what was the boy's wrist. The Turk's bayonet is jammed through the boy's stomach and one hand is clenched, claw-like, across the Australian's face. I wonder, will they fight if there's an afterworld? The Desert Column. Check out what I found on eBay today. It's one of the first books by Ian L. Idris. Cyaniding for Gold. The rare 1939 limited edition. It was a small print run. Prospectors used this book like a Bible. Most are pretty much wrecked. This one's in mint condition. No loose pages, a little foxing, and the edges of the pages are slightly browned with age. The dust cover's uncharacteristically plain for an Idris title. The bids start at $500. In 10 days, they jump by a few dollars, then 50, then someone gets fed up and ups the ante by 600 bucks. It sells at three and a half thousand. Everybody sort of regarded him as Happy Jack, and yet I knew the other side from Wendy. He was not Happy Jack. I had his regular night stand at the King's Pub up at King Street, and they were all there at closing time, and then all the old boys would get together. So on the surface, he was Happy Jack. But from what Wendy had said, you know, I knew there was a, there's another man in here who um, is hiding behind Happy Jack. I didn't realise that all Dad's papers were 23 butter boxes of papers, plus a couple of cardboard cartons and, and assorted envelopes. And 
when she gave them to me, I said, well, when, what am I going to do with these? She said, you'll catalogue them first. <laughs> well, that in itself took me two years. Yeah. Once you start reading, you get hooked. You know, you can't just say, oh, well, I'll put that aside. You can't put your finger on it. I mean, he, he is truly the enigma inside the enigma. Open the covers of Anidris and you might find the mysteries of the lives of savages revealed, spiritualism and alien visitations, tales of deprivation, determination, hardship, mateship, precious rock below ground, boundless country above it, and beyond that, a relentlessly rugged and romantic individuality. I ask around, who's heard of him? No one I know. Then someone says their grandmother's holiday shack on the coast had a few books. Smelling of the sea. Larry covers to the last. Someone else says, didn't every ordinary Aussie own at least one Idris in the mid-years of last century? He certainly wasn't an academics man. More like the serials at the flicks. An episode a year from the life of Jack on your bookshelves. Then I find he's got a biographer... Beverly Eli. I start to get really curious, but I can't buy the book for less than $100. It's just a paperback. Who is this guy? I get the biography ordered in from another library. I give Beverly a call. What kind of little boy do you think he was? Much like the man, I suspect. Quite possibly, yeah, in that matter of curiosity or when he talks about growing up in in Lismore and Grafton you know the Aborigines were still prevalent I used to love to watch them at night with their fire sticks and things great curiosities the cedar pirates and cedar traders up and down the coast that always fascinated him I think as a little boy you see much the man that sort of emphasis on on the bush and on on nature and then of course you know he did travel around with his father who was always a a sheriff from one place to the next i guess you know the itchy feet started when he was a kid there was nothing to sort of nail him down in one one place let's talk a little bit about julia what happened with julia and him he was the eldest and he got to actually help her with his sisters as they came along I think there was an enormous trust between them, and not only just mother love for for a son or a son for a mother. I think they were companions in that sense. Father was always out doing his policing work, and so he was very much the man of the family. And then he got the typhoid. She nursed him initially, and then they took him off to the hospital. Stretches running through the street on on bicycle wheels. The convalescent ward was a paradise through which demon hunger stalked. A convalescing typhoid patient famishes for food and food and food. It was a terrible hunger. Dad came when I was convalescing. Visiting days were paradise, long, lonely intervals between. I was surprised that Mother didn't come. But Dad explained that she dare not come yet a while for fear of taking back germs to my little sisters. Oh, I grew stronger and stronger and 
Yet Mother didn't come. I began to get frightened. At last they had to tell me. Mother was dead. She'd caught the fever through nursing me. I tried to die too. Lightning Ridge. Thirteenth January, nineteen o eight, Sulfide Street. Juliet Windia Idris. Domestic duties. Female, thirty eight years. Perforation of the bowels, peritonitis, typhoid fever. Cause of death, hemorrhage, failure of the heart. Father, John Windia Edmonds. Commissioner of Crown Lands. Husband, W. Owen Idris. Married 21 years. Buried, Anglican Cemetery, Broken Hill. Children, Ian, 18. Ildesi, 14. Esme, 7. Katie, 4. All living. At the heart of this story, is absence. Cold, shiny stones in the heart. Not pumping blood. Blood instead where it should not be. Lungs, mouth, handkerchief. In the heart, just absence. He immediately left I went to Sydney to live with his step-grandparents, John Windier and Kate Windier. And he didn't stay there very long. He took off on the steamers, and I think it was a, a coal steamer coming out of uh, Newcastle to Sydney up and down the coast. And then from that point on, he decided that he would go in the bush and get apprenticed on a station or something. And in those days, they were not paid terribly well. They were, actually, they were lucky if they got paid. You were, in fact, almost owned. And to get away, I mean, it was a case of just walking out, basically, and they, and they would get the police after him. Mm. So he had that happen once, I think. Came back home to Kate, and then immediately went away again, back out into the land. We'd stroll down. It was thrilling to get a glimpse of the stones. Beautiful things. Then we'd drift back to camp with feverish dreams of bottoming on stones like those. One particular evening, three mates had bottomed on it. Lovely stuff. All pinpoints of flame and flash of orange and green. The fire and the hurricane lamp were man's own rough light. How immeasurably more beautiful was this light? liberated from these dull stones. The light in these stones would never go out. Nature had imprisoned it there in utter darkness millions of years ago, and now it blazed in glory. Hundreds of pounds worth of gems lay there, possibly thousands, and how many more lay still buried down in the just bottom shaft? No wonder our nights were dreams of magic stones of fire and orange, of hordes of opals dug from the heart of the earth. Lightning Ridge. I first discovered Jack when looking up Lightning Ridge in my local library. 
There wasn't much there except for this really twee book full of florid prose. I wouldn't have borrowed it if there'd been anything else. Then I started reading. Then I got hooked into a town overflowing with crazy characters. The story of Kaiser, opal-obsessed, who cured his own alcohol-induced paralysis by dragging himself out into the Narran lakes and letting the mozzies at him night after night. I wrote Kaiser into a fictional character and then years later went looking for similar inspiration. Then it occurred to me, Idris was just as daring do as his characters. Why not take a closer look? By chance, a colleague happened on a rare gem in the ABC archives. A recording of Idris encouraging the troops in January 1942, with promises of work aplenty on their return. On a pet project of his. Hello, boys, and cheerio. Folk in Australia are trying to plan jobs for you on your return, and radio newsreaders asked me for my suggestion. Well, it is that we turn the wastewaters of our eastern coast back into the dry interior. Now, you boys from Brisbane to Cairns know of the sea of fresh water which wastes into the ocean every wet season. This is the water which by tunnel or pump should be turned back over the great dividing range. It would then flow down the Cooper, the Warrigo and Paru. No longer then need the crows from Badori fly backwards to keep the dust out of their eyes, nor need the Birdsville lads blow a dust storm every time they sneeze. From the border country, the three old man rivers, the Cooper, Diamantina and Georgina, would then flow on inland into the north of South Australia and fill the great salt lakes. It is a tremendous job, but it can be done. And it would save us all from depression. Not only would it reclaim vast areas of country for stock raising and agriculture, but it would mean the start of one of the greatest hydroelectric schemes in the world. Old towns would grow into cities, new towns would spring up, cheap power would start many a new industry. It would mean security for you on your return home. It would mean work and prosperity for us all. So long, lads, and the best of luck. I started leafing through his books, but it didn't take long to start feeling a suspicion about him. Something's missing. They're so personal. You read them and you think you're yarning up at the pub. Except Idris, though more than keen on the pub, by all accounts didn't yarn, kept to himself pretty much. Took it all in, then wrote about it in his diaries. Anyway, there you are with Idris up at the local exclaiming, really, is that so? What a life, eh? How'd he do it? And then you say, hang on a minute, mate. Where's the women? Where are the women in your books? And he looks at you and he stops talking right there. His face freezes over. And then everything goes to black and you're left holding the book in your hand and it's suddenly become rather heavy. He's gone back to the bush. Oh, yeah, I wanted to get 
Oh, he was a bonzer chap, Dick. He was a Cooktown boy. And the boys there, they, they were all friends with the Aboriginal boys. They were a very plentiful population there, and especially across the bay. There was a big mission there that was top part of the peninsula. Oh, and an interesting old missionary was in charge of it too. But in the Cooktown site, out towards the tin fields, there was the tribes all the way out and right down to China Camp and right away down into the south. Well, those boys with Dick and all the other Cooktown boys used to go trapping things and chasing things and that's where I first learned how to track an ant. Yes, you can track an ant if you know how and you can track him right to his home. You can track a cricket, a, tiniest, a tiny little lizard. They, they leave a track as plain as a bloody 20-foot crocodile leaves. Well, in proportion, you know, but it's plain. Oh, yeah, all sorts of insects, funny little things in the wet sand and especially down the tides by the Endeavour River where old Captain Cook anchored for a while. Oh, it's covered with millions and millions of tracks of things. These little nigger boys would teach us. They, they knew what everything was. Old Womba, walking beside his team, clothed in his right mind, happy. He was going home to little Lucy and to old Mungutty. He chuckled and the birds sang with him. When at long last Womba dragged himself back to the homestead, he saw Mungutty running from afar. She was screaming at him in high-pitched Aboriginal. He knew the tidings of woe only too well. Mungadi was in sorry. She had torn the dress of civilization from her body, had smashed a bottle and gashed her head and face. A dreadful sight. Had thrown ashes of the fire into the ghastly wounds. With outstretched arms, she came screaming to him, threw herself at his feet, clawing the earth, wailing strangely in pidgin English. Oh, Womba, man belong a me. They take him, our little fella, Lucy, belong a us to Womba. They take him, Lucy, away. Womba bent down with a low, animal-like growl, his gnarled hands trembling as he stroked her head, trying to comfort her. He had never known a crime bring such a penalty as this. He pleaded that if he must lose Lucy, then... Could she be placed in Beagle Bay Mission between Broome and Derby? Then he could bring Mungati into Derby each wet season from where she could visit Lucy. But the Aborigines department was adamant. The child was to be taken beyond reach of contaminating influence of the parents. Something definite had to be done about this vexed question of half-caste children. One wet season. I'll admit I'm moved to tears by this. We know the facts of the stolen generation, and in this book, Idris brings them alive. He was a man of his time, believed the tribes would die out, and he described the abos, as he called them, as Stone Age. But he moved comfortably with the indigenous people he came across. He risked spearing in the night as he travelled through the countries of Cape York. He didn't respond aggressively. He understood, in a way, he was trespassing, accepted the risks the consequences. He saw them as warriors, defenders of their country, and he respected them as such. And he gave presentations at the Aborigine Royal Commission of 1934. Once any of the white men in my day understood the Abo's point of view and that different tribes can be entirely different, we got on very well with them. They did try to get us in the night time, 
And it could have been the death of us. They could have knocked us off one by one. They'd perhaps spear a horse or two of mine every now and again. We knew they'd attempt to if they could, because once we'd pass by, a speared horse would be rattling good tucker for the whole tribe. Then other tribes would be all for us. So where did he go next? He went to New Guinea recruiting for pearl divers and to the Thursday Islands, travelling with Reverend McFarlane. He prospected for gold in North Queensland and went to Cairns. He met a girl there. There or was it Broome later on? Or both, perhaps? you remember one night when you were there, what you did? Well, there's some nights I remember what I did, a lot I don't. What did you do? I don't remember which one. I don't remember which one you mean in particular. Well, the settlements there at the mouth of the river had always interested me. Like people in the islands there were the Malays and Chinese and island girls. And believe me, they're lovely island girls. They were fascinating people to me and they're so friendly. There was a lovely little Malay girl. And, and for some strange, unexplainable reason, she thought me not too bad either. There was beautiful, shady coconut palms with glorious shadows and the stars coming through the branches up above. And there was me telling such a wonderful story. I really believed it myself. It was so wonderful and so good. And the, the bloody angry Malay father with a, with a huge Chris. And there was me going for the lick of my life. There's a, oh, there's a whole story in that if you can picture this. He is supposed to have gone bush from that point because he couldn't stay. But in terms of personal encounters and involvement with women, it's all very well hidden. You know, you tend to think, oh yeah, well there's more here than meets the eye. <laughs> this was the most idyllic time of your life, wasn't it? Oh, it was. And those coloured people of all shades of colours, from a golden pink to a, a golden russet sort of colour. And by cripes, they look good, you know. Under those surroundings, anyway. Things got a little less idyllic after that. The depression hit. Men were leaving town in droves, but Idris, out in the bush, came to Sydney, all the time writing, writing. I'd reached the point where he, in, the, in 1931, when the depression started, when he'd left the bush to come to work and write in Sydney. And he would have been 31, so he would have been about 40-odd, 41, yes, yeah. that's right, 42, I think it was. To me, it was an enormous puzzle. Like, every other guy, you know, in the city, because there's no work, he's going bush. And Jack Idris, who has lived in the bush all his life, who was able to survive very well, suddenly decides he's going to come live in the city. He was never entirely predictable, but nonetheless. Now, I wrote that chapter, and for no earthly reason, because I'd never had any trouble before or after, computer just blew it away. And I'd reached the third time, and, and I, I can remember saying out loud, OK, Jack, so I'm wrong. All right, then, now let's get it right. Let's go to the right place. Now, what, what actually happened? And so back to the, the research. And then the penny dropped. He had written an article about six months before about someone dying of cancer because they hadn't sought medical attention. And then I thought, oh, where was he living? was right behind St Vincent's Hospital. So I 
Well, that's funny. Why would he go and live there? You know, this is a very long shot. I'll ring St. Vincent's and see if I can get onto the archives and see if somebody has any records anywhere. And I forget her name, sister. Somebody else will come on, sister. Look, this is really important, you know. Please. Oh, well, I'll see what I can do when I can find the time. I'm very busy. And I said, well, I can understand that, but still. Eight or nine days later, I had a telephone call. Well, I found your man. And he was listed, and he was being treated for what I think must have been a melanoma. Another girl, much more suitable than the Malay and her crazy father, spinning around in the middle of Paddington Town Hall. Taffeta and Lavender, the Grand Gala Night, June 4, 1931. Or maybe 1932. Story's still hazy. She's a dead spit of Julia anyway. Etta Gibson, just beautiful. Men dropping like flies all around. He walks up to her. As he approaches, some process of osmosis occurs. She knows everything about him and he about her. He holds out his hand. She takes it. (laughs) That's how it should have happened. Actually, he had to win her over. Bushman's all-weather coat, a broad hat. Not her type, not at all. Maybe he just sees her at the ball and it takes him a year of wooing to convince her. A bright morning. The super and Bill arrive with the car. The family pour out of the house at the brazen toot-toot. Our Bill repacks this and repacks that answering the barrage of questions from my wife and offspring. I'm supposed to be useless anyway. The family offer cheerful suggestions, all chattering at once. We climbed aboard to farewells from Edda and Judy and the neighbours and a yell from Wendy. Hey, Dad, be sure to bring me something funny from the Nullarbor. Across the Nullarbor. It wasn't ever like that, though, was it? All white picket fence, happy families. Though true that Jack was always on the move, away six months of the year, researching for the next book, the one after. Even a new love couldn't keep him at home. Maybe it was discovering Etta had secrets. Somehow she'd hidden from Jack a marriage, a toddler and a young baby, if not a pregnancy, for two years, until she finally fell pregnant to Jack. So when his daughter, Wendy, is born, Jack's in broom. He's on the way, though, writing for his life. Books walking out the door. At those times, he would lay on his back, propped up by a couple of pillows, stroking his head with his left hand and running the fingers gently from the back of his head down the centre and lifting them off as they reached the top of his forehead. Over and over and over, hour after hour, completely oblivious to all else around him, as if he was stimulating his mind to take him back in time to the country and the people he knew he had to write about. Wendy Idris. There is an assessment that he sold something like, and this is a huge number, three million books. The majority of those were sold during the Depression. And the theory for that was he actually offered them escapism, took them back to their roots, and 
helped to sort of ease the dreary business of living through the depression in the city. And instead of going to concerts and things, they would buy an address book. I mean, three million books is a enormous number of books during the depression. Really, the brain buckles. The majority of the gougers only knew him as an Austrian count who had uh, done something or other and was now an opal gouger. But at night, when foreign mail came for him, he confided deeply in old John and one restless night told all. The story was of the tragic lives of the Emperor Francis Joseph of Austria and the Empress Elizabeth. The Crown Prince Rudolf had played truant from the Emperor and was giving a wild party to his host of brilliant friends at his hunting lodge. It was a scene in fairyland, that ballroom and dining hall. A dream of loveliness was the young Baroness, Marie Vetsera. She was sitting by the side of the Prince. He toasted her again and again, but the toast was bittersweet. Among the guests was a young aristocrat, madly in love with the girl, and the Prince knew it. At last, the young lover rose from the table and hurried from the room, mad with jealousy. Next morning, the prince's valet, Lucek, went to call the prince. My own brother, Count Hoist, happened to come along. They tried to wake the prince, in vain. Step back, ordered my brother, then spring forward with me and crash our shoulders against the door. They did so. The crown prince was there, half sitting. A revolver had fallen from his hand. Marie Vetsera was lying there. She clutched a flower in her hand. Both were shot through the head. And the verdict? Asked old John softly. Suicide, murmured the Count. But what happened to the lover? He was never seen again answered the Count, evasively. Lightning Ridge. You know, you've got to say to yourself, did he make this up? But the truth is, he didn't have access to that kind of material to make it up. And all the facts fitted nicely. Had he been somebody I mean, he was educated, but he was not an academic, so he wouldn't have known anything about that. I mean, there's just so many things you could say to make it up. But if you do your research, you say, he could not have done it. He did meet these people. They were there, which leads you to believe that the whole country was teeming with characters. <laughs> <laughs> Truly crazy people. <laughs> Why did these old chaps live out in the bush by themselves like that? Well, I, th- I think it was more well, a mental thing. Well, I think it was more a mental they thing. Thought that they could they thought that they could learn things some of the time. They really thought if they sat out there at night time, especially on moonlit nights, they could learn things coming to them from the stars. And mind, there might be something in it. As I grow older and older and think about all these waves, countless waves and pulsations and things they're finding in the air with these modern instruments, well, 
In this room, there's countless pulsations and vibrations and all sorts of things going on. So what, what these old blokes reckon, they could make their mind a dynamo or something or other that, that'd track what they wanted to learn. If they could get in touch with the vibrations, that it would react in the mind sort of thing. I used to love those walks in the bush, the things I'd hear, the things I'd see. I could hear the trees talking. I, re I really could. I'd put my head up against and listen, and I could hear a woodpecker building his nest in another tree with his beak, exactly like strong hammer blows. I could hear trees talking. I could hear them moving. That was when they were drawing up the sap from the depths of the ground. They, they'd draw up their sap. I could hear it going up. Of course I could. Now, alcohol, <clears throat> I think Jack had always, I mean, it started in the bush, it went through the war. I think he was always, had been a fairly heavy drinker. And apparently he could be an extraordinarily happy drunk, but if he had been on the whiskey, Wendy said it was shocking. He would get very crass, coarse, common, abusive. And she said, I always knew when he, he was on the whiskey, she said, from the way he put his key in the front door, she said, you could tell. It really was a jackal and I do. I mean, street angel, house devil. He's played merry hell in the house, apparently. In what way was he unpleasant? It's the sort of thing, taking young Judy out, he was petrified of the water, to one of the lakes in um, East Lakes Golf Course, swam out with him, the line in the middle, swam off and left her. <laughs> Told her she couldn't swim, she could stay there and then die there. Well, she couldn't swim. Uh, and she was quite young. She was only about five or six or something. And he just walked away, left her there. Now, you could say that's um, one sure way to get the kid to swim. But with a child that young, it's a very cruel thing to do because she's isolated in a sheet of water. He's walked away and left her. Uh, Wendy said that was pretty indicative of the way he was. That sink or swim attitude, you, you're on your own. Mm. It could be extraordinarily hard, yes. But that's not the way the public saw him, of course. <clears throat> Old Dr Poet is very pleased, and I will very soon have finished with him altogether, thank goodness. I took him a bottle of whiskey, and he patted my behind and said, some man is missing out on a very good woman. Well, after that, anything could have happened. But I just left. No one is sleeping in your bed. Yet. Your Etta. The house would be full of American um, soldiers, not, not necessarily of rank. Now, he would be in there, in his room, writing... Well, it was outside and partying on. It's amazing, really, that Jack didn't actually get quite bitter and twisted about it all. But probably part of that live and let live thing. She didn't know what he did while he was away, I suppose. So then he would be away six months at a time. Now, just where she met Frank, I don't know, but Jack would be home and she would cook three meals, one for her, one for Jack, and she would take her meal and Frank's meal and he would be waiting 
on the corner in his truck and she would eat her meal at night down the corner with Frank. I mean, how, how long had she been with? With Jack? Oh, I think we're looking about 18 years. It was a long time. She was 20 years older than Frank. He was absolutely besotted by the woman. She must have had something. I would say it continued for eight years. And he built a house at Sutherland, Frank did. And she went to live at Sutherland with him. And she would come back on a Wednesday and she would go and do the shopping for him and clean the house. And then Saturday, both she and Frank would come back to Jack and they'd all go to the races together. Frank was happy with the arrangement. He was happy. He liked Jack. Jack liked him. <laughs> This may be my last book, though I'll keep going while I have a kick left in me. And I have written it above all for the younger generation of Australians. There are unlimited possibilities and untold rewards and satisfactions for those who devote their brains and skills to Australia's development. Our young people must become continent-minded fast, but there is plenty of high adventure awaiting them. Adventure as fascinating as that being found by the Wonder Men who set the astronauts on voyages of discovery into space. For we are opening up the last continent, and our vision shows breathless possibilities. Challenge of the North. Well, Julia's death, of course, took beauty out of his life, because he always went on about how he used to love to watch her when she was dressing to go to a ball, and and he loved the perfume, although it was only lavender, and her hair was always so shiny. And then suddenly, that's gone. There's nothing. And not only that, he's replaced with um, a feeling of guilt, because he knew he shouldn't have drunk the water from the creek without it being boiled. And he got the typhoid. She nursed him, and then she later dies of the typhoid because of that. All that beauty is gone, replaced by guilt. And I think he was not going to ever get that deeply in where he could lose like that again and go through that suffering again. He did a lot of interviews towards the end. He was on TV with Bill Peach. He spoke at length for the Canberra archives in 74 to Hazel de Berg and to young journalist Tim Bowden in 1975. You can imagine my excitement when I discovered those and received the tapes in the mail, and my disappointment when I heard his elderly voice and it was almost unintelligible, especially for radio broadcast. Typical Idris. You think you've caught him, and you just haven't. So what is it that makes a man whose last days were spent drinking sweet sherry and milk sustain such a cult following on eBay today, in the second-hand bookshops too? accompanied by a quiet pride and a sense of ownership from the buyers. The romance is irresistible, it's true. But I think it's the inspiration that you feel, the sheer wonder and incredibility of Jack's world around us, the possibilities. Back when he was in full swing, he inspired Australians to look at themselves differently. Look in the mirror of an Idris book and you find, not yourself, a humble reader, but a hero inside. Gougers saw themselves chipping away at barren rock at the moment of the lucky strike. Farmers saw paddocks of green stretching to the horizon. 
cattle duffers owned property and picket fences. The worst failure in the world sees he's got a chance if he just up sticks one more time and move on to a fresh start. But I'm beginning to think that Idris was so relentlessly optimistic because if he didn't keep gunning for life and all its wonders, then death would move in and overwhelm everything. He kept on writing because the words kept death and loss at bay. We really don't know the man because there's nothing of the man. It's only what he did and what he achieved and not what he thought, felt and was. And you can't say, oh, yeah, well, I've got a handle on you. I know what you are. It is like it's a smokescreen. It's all there. Everywhere you turn, like, who is this man, you know? We know who he is. We know what he's done, but we don't know where he lives. Who lives in there? I think, you know, you'd have to say, Jack, he was an isolationist, a separatist and a watcher. He was very happy with his own company. He probably fitted in quite well with the boys because he did boys' things, and they all did. I often wonder if he actually saw himself as part of the human race. Everybody, I understand what they're doing, I see what they're doing, I know what they're doing, but I'm not part of that. Well, if I could find the inclination, I could... Easy, right? Another 50 books. If I could find the inclination, I could easily write another 50 books out of those notebooks that I've got over there. Easy. And upstairs, I've got boxes the daughter has gone and put away in some place where they're out of the road somewhere. You see, I kept things like that. Starting from a boy with a bulletin sort of thing, see, and I'd write things down so you didn't have to trust the memory. And I'd think write things, up. things down so you didn't have to trust the memory or think things up. Perhaps I've got enough memories and things in those notebooks to write for a hundred years, I really think. <laughs> 